We will talk about verse number 19 probably next week. It's a whole other topic. It's a really rich topic, but I'm not prepared to discuss that tonight. So what we're going to be talking about is some of the background to this event. This is one of the most important events in the synoptic gospels. If you don't know what synoptic mean, it means seeing the same, seeing the same way or seeing in a like manner. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke and uh, or Matthew, Mark and Luke, they are the synoptic gospels and John is is pretty unique and I think that you know John as an apostle was led by the Holy Spirit and he probably also, probably also thought himself looking at the synoptic gospels. You know, these gospels, they all have a special aspect that they present of Jesus, Matthew, his his Jewishness, his uh, Davidic ancestry, he's the Messiah, the fulfillment of all these covenants. Mark has Jesus as the miracle worker, uh, presenting acts of power to a Roman audience. And Luke presents Jesus as the Son of Man. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. It really highlights uh, Jesus as that physician. And so I think John, in his older age, looked at those and said, they say everything that needs to be said by them individually, but there's some other stuff that needs to be said too. And so I am going to approach the life of Christ a little bit differently than them. And so that's why John's unique. Okay, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all have their perspective, right. but they're very similar to each other. And so John kind of does something new and different. But of course, they all complement each other. And John's gospel, just as an aside, it really emphasizes the deity of Christ. But anyways... Was John written last? John was written last, okay. yeah. It was probably written in the 80s, AD. Okay, yeah, yeah. So after the temple was destroyed, after uh, Peter had passed away, and mm -hmm. a number of the disciples had passed away, uh, at that point, he may have been in the 80s, uh, maybe early nineties, the last surviving apostle at that point. Right. So he's, he's very old yeah, yeah. when he wrote John, but I just wanted to mention that in case, if you're listening to this podcast, all the gospels have a purpose and they present Jesus in different ways. And together those four gospels give us all the information we need about Christ. But, uh, this particular instance in Matthew 16 is very, very important. It's that turning point where, they have all throughout Jesus' ministry up to this point, they've seen his miracles, they've seen his power, but there's still those lingering doubts in their mind whenever Jesus calmed the storm. Hmm. They said, who is this? What manner of man right. is this that has the ability to command the storm, to command the elements, and they obey him, the wind and the sea? And so they should have known better at this point because Jesus rebukes him and says, why are you still unbelieving? Why are you of little faith? So they have heard already that Jesus is the Messiah. We know that because John the Baptist pointed him out. And they probably believed that right. and had hope. But Jesus hasn't actually taken them aside and stated explicitly this is who I am. It's like they, they saw the miracles, but that one kind of went, wait a second, who who is this guy, really? It was over the you top. You know what I mean? It was, it was over the it top. It was over the top. And and Jesus has been telling the demons to hush. Yes. Whenever they say, I'm the Messiah, or he's the Messiah, they were quieted by him. Jesus has not been publicly speaking it out loud. So you may wonder if they second-guessed 
earlier what yeah. they had come to believe that he was the Messiah. Like, why isn't Jesus saying it out loud? Why isn't he saying it to us? Why is this being quieted so much? But at this point, he's asking them, what are the people saying? And what's interesting is nobody in mm. verse 14 that they mentioned said that Jesus was the Messiah. I know there were people who were thinking it, but the candidates that are mentioned, John the Baptist, um, Elias, Elijah, which is Elijah, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, you know, the idea of one of the prophets coming back from the dead, whether that's John the Baptist or Jeremiah or one of the others. Uh, there were lots of opinions, but none of the opinions they mentioned here included well, you're the Messiah. That's what some people are saying. Yeah, yeah. I but, was always, sorry, I was always confused why they said that he was John the Baptist when they were there at the same time. Yeah, you know I, think, I, mean? I think at this point, uh, John's dead. John is dead. And there was this idea that John the Baptist may have come back from the dead. And he, they're saying this is what some people are saying. They're not yeah. saying we believe no, it. No, I'm no, sure no. they didn't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But John the Baptist, I've wondered the same thing. I've wondered like, the well, exact same thing. That is seems to be a bizarre idea that, hey, well, they had a ministry that overlapped. Right. Their disciples were aware of each other. And so there's this idea that you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. It may have been, though, that this is something that maybe not the the populace believed. Yeah. I wonder if this was perhaps Herod because John the Baptist was getting Herod's attention. Right. Of course. I don't know if Herod was really aware of Jesus's ministry. Hmm. It Not may have been later. that he was yeah. aware of John the Baptist's ministry. He takes John the Baptist in custody. The story goes that he ultimately has John the Baptist executed, right. his head delivered to Herodias on a platter. Right. And whenever he hears about this ministry of Jesus, maybe the first time he's heard of it, uh, it's fresh to him, and it sounds very similar because Jesus' ministry towards the beginning uh, was similar in that his message was repent, the kingdom is yeah. coming, and a lot of people were flocking after Jesus just like they flocked after John. It could right. have been that Herod in his superstition believed that maybe John the Baptist had returned, sure. and uh, maybe he was coming to punish him too. Yeah. You know, probably paranoid about it. But uh, yeah, that's a good question. You know, mm. what was the populace thinking? I don't know if that was maybe what the crowds believed. Yeah, or just. But it could be John the Bat. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, Herod. But Elijah, that one makes sense. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, it makes perfect sense from a Jewish perspective. The prophet Elijah will come before the Messiah does. Yeah. And maybe since Jesus has not publicly said, I am the Christ, maybe they thought he was Elijah. Uh, and, you know, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, I, I haven't quite wrap my mind around that one, why they would think that it was one of the ancient prophets come back from the dead. It could be that there is some second temple Jewish viewpoint that mm -hmm. I'm not aware of right. that would explain that. But in any event, Sorry. Jesus turns the question on to them and says, who do you say that I am? So again, this is the turning point. There hasn't been an explicit statement from Christ up to this point publicly that he is the Messiah. And now he's asking the disciples what do y'all think? Right. And it would have been pretty awkward too, I can imagine. Because again, they've thought about it. They've probably talked about it among themselves. If you've watched the show, The Chosen, right. you know, it, it really gets into the relationships between the disciples and the conversations that they had. And they probably had arguments and disputes. Sure. And, and so... Not to say that that's 
um, scripture. It's no, just, yeah. I mean, it's it, they're, they're humans, right? And I I know that Christians we have our own absolutely around the table discussions and even debates. Yeah. And since they were from a variety of backgrounds, there may have been some tension between them. Yeah. You know, the fact that Matthew was a tax collector, and that's all presented in the show. But that's kind of rabbit trail. What I'm trying to say is, uh, all the discussions that they've had with each other, all of their inner thoughts and um they're trying to wrap their mind around this is becoming pushed upon them they have to decide what they're going to say and they kind of i can imagine looking at each other awkwardly i don't know how long it was before peter spoke but i can almost imagine that it was a palpable silence yeah that that they just kind of like uh you know i I teach high school students and i'll say anybody want to pray or i'll say Anybody want to read this verse? And they just all look at each other and it's awkward. You know, I'm not going to do it. Are you going to do it? You know? And so that's probably the way it is until Peter speaks up. It is confession, of course. And Matthew here is is fuller than in Mark. Mark's version doesn't include uh, of the living God, son Mm. of the living God. But thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. That is the highest form of confession here. Uh, I think that this certainly included... And again, there are people who might disagree with me on this, but I, I certainly think that this included his pre-existence, um, his being the eternal son of God. There were, without a doubt, in the Second Temple Jewish uh, writings that we have preserved for us today, there were indications that people were thinking about uh, this idea of God having a son. Right. Philo had the Logos, and the Palestinians, they had the Targums, their Aramaic paraphrases, which referred to the Mimrah. And so they were thinking about these things right. at the time. And while the Pharisees, as is clearly sh- uh, shown later in Matthew, they believed that the Messiah was going to be uh, a mere man, a descendant of David. Jesus questioned that and challenged that by saying, if he's the son of David, then why does David call him Lord? Absolutely. So, But there were apparently some people at the time who thought about God having a son. They may not have linked God having a son with the Messiah, they may have seen them as different, possibly. Uh, again, I'd encourage you to do your research on that. It's you know a whole branch of historical study because there are, uh, there are a lot of things to look into. But anyways, uh, he's probably no doubt here in my mind saying that you are the eternal son of God and you are the Christ. So you came, just like John the Baptist said, from heaven down to earth. If you read uh, John chapter 3, John the Baptist talks about the one who is from above is above all. In John chapter 1, he says in verse 15, that the one coming after me is preferred before me because he was before me. And so I think that Peter's confession here is the highest uh, form of praise. And that's why the Lord says, blessed are you. Uh, flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee. This is not mm. an idea that people are thinking about right now. Right. I mean, they got all kinds of opinions, you know, but yep. what your form of praise, your form of confession is the purest kind. And it's not really what the crowd. It's not are. coming from, and it's not coming from him. Yeah. It's coming from exact, the Holy Spirit. Or exactly. The yeah. And right. Jesus, and Jesus hasn't sat them down every single day right. and said, Hey guys, I'm the Christ. Right. I'm the son of God. Um, that's not the way it's been. That's why there's this hesitancy right. about them having to answer this question. But listen, Peter, he's been paying attention. Okay, there's been statements here and there. Yeah. Like from John the Baptist. 
have no doubt that he was aware of the Old Testament to some extent. Mm-hmm. He's been doing some soul searching. He's been praying about this. God's been working on him yeah. as he's been working on all the disciples. Yeah. And Peter is responsive to the Holy Spirit and he recognizes who Jesus is. Um, unlike Judas. Right. And so Peter, I think he spoke for the rest of the disciples. I think they probably also were thinking in these terms, but again, they weren't the ones to speak out loud. And that's really what makes Peter, I think, so interesting to us as Christians is because he always was the one to open up his mouth. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that got him in trouble. Right. And sometimes that led him to receiving some of the highest praise. Right. Which I think is interesting. But uh, I want to talk a little bit now about where this confession took place. It says Caesarea Philippi. And as okay. I've been studying this, there's just been so much of a wealth of information that's come right. from archaeology yes. to uh, kind of show us the historical theological background to this event. Because if we're just reading it straight out of the text, obviously it's powerful just by itself. But the background just makes it all the more rich. So let me tell you a little bit about Caesarea Philippi. So uh, it was originally called uh, Peneus or Peneus. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a Hellenistic city, so Greek. Mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. founded by the Greeks mm-hmm. whenever they came into the area. Alexander the Great had conquered the area, and it was named after the Greek god Pan. And Pan was a half-man, half-goat half. satyr, and it's where we get the term panic from in English. Huh. Because according to the mythological superstition, Pan um, would create in people an irrational fear when they Mm. were around him. Um, And so panic and pan became associated with one another. Um, But there was at the base of Mount Hermon. So this is Northern Israel. I know a lot of us, you know, from here in the U S don't have a good picture of the layout of the land, but in Northern Israel at the base of the highest peak in the area, which is called Mount Hermon, that's where the city was, Caesarea Philippi. And it was called Peneus because they worship Pan here. And there was actually a grotto, a cave, at the base of Mount Hermon that was dedicated to Pan. It was a place of worship. And it was also believed to be, by the Greeks who lived there, the Greek pagans, to be the entryway to Hades. And so when Jesus speaks of the gates of hell, the word here in Greek is not Gehenna. It's not referring to the lake of fire. The word is Hades. So the gate of Hades, you wonder he's in the area of Caesarea Philippi and he speaks of the gate of Hades, Hmm. uh, not prevailing against uh, the church. Uh, So that's interesting. Yes. Yeah. I think it's very, very interesting. I Uh, think, I think there. Sorry, I got a little tiny rabbit trail. There's uh, a couple on um, YouTube, Rhoda, and I forget his name, and they have this channel where they they go around uh, Israel, the Israelis, um, the Christian Israelis, yeah. and uh, they uh, go around Israel. And I think that they went there. Yeah, I, think I was. There's a video on it. I've seen I've seen some pictures as I was yeah. reading articles about this. It's a if there's a number of people. And I think it's recent archaeological discoveries in this area that are yeah. really making it popular. I think in 2020 there were a number of discoveries in the area. Right. But uh, Pan's Grotto hmm. was a hot spot 
for paganism in the Absolutely. area. Absolutely. And you got to think, like, why did Jesus go in this area? This was a Gentile region. Right. So, yeah, they were Jews who were living in this area, I'm sure. Uh, but in, let's see, where is it? I think it's in, let's see. Yeah, it's in chapter 15. So in the previous chapter, it's where the Canaanite woman. Yeah, the faith had, of the Canaanite woman. The Syrophoenician woman. woman um, has a daughter who is possessed ah, by yes. a devil. And she wants Jesus to cast the devil out. And he says... I was only sent to the lost sheep. Yes, exactly. I was sent to Israel. And she says, yes, but you know, even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the table. And he was pleased with their faith and he healed her daughter. Yeah. And so I think what this is indicating, just as Jesus went to the Samaritans, who were considered unclean, yeah. and he's going to the Gentiles, mm. there's a lot of paganism in this area. I think Jesus is demonstrating his great love. But I think even more than that, in, in this particular text, when we talk about the gates of hell, he's He's demonstrating his power over the pagan deities. Mm. And, and this aspect of spiritual warfare would have really made a lot of sense to the Jewish person who was reading this. And that's because they believed that those pagan gods were demonic entities. Jesus casts out a demon Which they were. in this area, yeah. Syrophoenicia. Yeah. So when he's casting out demons in the area... He is demonstrating his power over the false gods. Mm -hmm. um, another thing, it's interesting that uh, this place that was dedicated to Pan later on, uh, Philip, he built or I suppose added on to the pre-existing settlement in the area. And uh, he named it Caesarea after Caesar. Right. And it was called Caesarea Philippi, named after him. And it literally means Philip's Caesarea. Mm -hmm. So there was another Caesarea and that was Caesarea Maritima. Right. And that was on the coast. This one's inland, so it differentiates. But this was named after Caesar and dedicated to him. And at Caesarea Philippi, there would have been uh, a temple dedicated to not just the, the Greco-Roman gods, but also dedicated to the emperor himself. Right. He was considered to be a son of the gods. Uh, he was considered a semi-divine being, mm -hmm. and he was worshipped. And it was a custom that they would offer incense to the emperor. And that got Christians in trouble many years later, whenever they Christianity uh, fell under the radar of the Roman Empire. Um, they wouldn't offer incense to the emperor. Everybody else did that. Right. It was, you know, Perpetual, understood, right? Yeah. right? That, you know, he's like, he's a descendant of the gods, He's semi-divine being. Right. And so you would worship him by offering the incense, but the Christians wouldn't do it. And so they were thrown in prison and in many, many and cases. To the lions. Yeah, and, executed yeah, in yeah. brutal ways. So in this area, the one who was known as the son of God, the son of a God, that was em the emperor. That yes. was Emperor Augustus. Or was it Augustus at this point? I have to double check that. I think it was actually Tiberius who was mm. alive at the time. But... Uh, Either way, whoever was the emperor at this point, the emperor was regarded as the son of a god. And Jesus here is being confessed as the son of the living God. And it talks about, again, the, the gates of Hades. And again, like I mentioned earlier, Pan was seen as the source of this irrational panic. Right. Uh, they would have sacrificed uh, their children from the earliest days in this area, because long before it was dedicated to Pan, it was dedicated to the God Baal. And so this area, all this paganism, yeah. it's, it's a very dark place. It's a place where demons thrive. And honestly, these people, 
they're living in fear. They believe that if they don't offer these offerings to their gods, in some cases, human offerings, their their firstborn, mm-hmm. um, if they don't do that, then the gods will withhold their blessings. And not just that, if you were in this in one of these communities and you refuse to offer your child to these gods, they would they would kill you, and then and take they your child. and they take your child. So. There was this this fear that had gripped these people. It was just absolute fear, and we see it in many places in the world where they believe in, in the spirits. Yes, and uh, I remember. Wow, gosh, I had to think for a second, but it was in Papua New Guinea, and I can't remember the tribe. I think the the name of the video, though, if you want to look it up, is Itau. Hmm. Um, the Tau, not the Dao tribe. Like, no, I don't think it was the Dao tribe. Phillips. It was the e, the e Tau. I think it's E T O W is the name of it. Okay, but look it up. I th- I'm pretty sure it's Papua New Guinea. Yeah, and uh, it was describing how they would they would believe that you could trap people's spirits in, in containers, sacred containers, huh. and they they would live in fear that their soul was going to be hijacked by an evil spirit, and they'd they'd be cursed and doomed. Yeah. It's a horrible way to live, you know, but yes. that that's that's paganism. And the demons had these people in thrall. Now, speaking of the demons, it's not a coincidence that there was so much demonic activity here. So besides the fact that, again, this was dedicated to the god Pan, and then Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says that these gods of the Greeks are demons. Going back further, this area was known for demonic activity. In 1 Chronicles 5... Verse 23, this area is called Baal Hermon. So this location where Caesarea Philippi was yeah. eventually built, it was called Baal Hermon. So it is a it is a place dedicated to the worship of Baal at the base of Mount oh, Hermon. And, yeah. and, and Baal Hermon literally means Lord of Hermon. Yeah. So this would have been a sacred mountain dedicated to Baal who reigns on this mountain. Yeah. And so they would have envisioned Baal and his council of gods reigning on this mountain. Also, this is the area of Bashan. And in Joshua 12, 5, it mentions that King Og, the Nephilim giant, who ruled over the area of Bashan, he ruled from Mount Hermon. Right. So that means that this was, if not the capital of his kingdom, it was included in his kingdom. Yeah. And so we see the Nephilim, Baal worship, uh, connected to Mount Hermon in Judges 18 and in 1 Kings 12, the city of Dan. That's only, it's it's less than six miles away from Caesarea Philippi. So it's just a walk down the way. At Dan, they had built up uh, idol worship there in the days of the Judges. And later when the kingdom split, they put a golden calf. It was King Jeroboam the first. He put a golden calf there in Dan and also Bethel further south. So this area is just absolute center for idol worship. Going all the way back to the days when they first entered the land. And I think even before them. Sure, right. And so this is where it gets into a little bit of extra biblical literature, but I do want to throw it out there because I think in this case, it is definitely worth mentioning. So according to the book of Enoch, first Enoch or Enoch, as some people pronounce it, I'm going to say Enoch in first Enoch, it talks about how the watchers, the 200 angels that were fallen, they came down to Mount Hermon. They basically made it their base, their, 
campsite. And it was from Mount Hermon that they took wives from the uh, daughters of man. Right. And the children that were born as a result of these relationships were the giants and Nephilim. Nephilim. Now it says there were giants on the earth before the flood and also after that. It says that in Genesis 6. Now, according to Enoch, Mount Hermon is that mountain where they landed. Uh, Here's the problem with that. And this is something I've never really had someone answer uh, to my satisfaction. I've emailed a couple of people about it, and they, I don't think they've really thought it through. Uh, I've even seen some young earth creationists who I respect uh, when it comes to their research about the Nephilim, but they don't really see that there's a disconnect because they say that Mount Hermon is that location where the fallen angels came. Mm. But yet the young earth creationist, and according to young earth creationism, a literal reading of Genesis, the topography of the earth was completely changed by the flood. Right. So there may have been a high place, Mm. possibly, in the same place where Mount Hermon is today. But we can say for sure that Mount Hermon today is not... Not the same. It's not the same, at least. And it could be that Mount Hermon today is a mountain that didn't even exist before the flood. We don't know for sure. And again, I'm not a geologist, so I don't know. But I know that... It definitely has flood sediments on it, hmm. so it has so been. Therefore, it has been changed. Okay, yes. it was covered in the flood, uh, it was altered significantly. Right. That's all I could say about it. So I doubt that Mount Hermon is, you know, with certainty the is location the yeah, where yeah. they landed. However, there is a connection between this post-flood mountain and the Nephilim, and it's ingrained in the Jewish mindset. Hmm. So how do how does one explain that? Did they just randomly pick a mountain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or well, is it something else? I can't help but wonder if after the flood, the reason that they associate the fallen angels with Mount Hermon is because the second incursion of fallen angels, remember there was Nephilim before and after, right. the second incursion happened after the flood at Mount Hermon, today and that would explain the why there's a nephilim giant named king og who rules from mount hermon and there's idol worship in the area uh, in a in a great way greater than you see in other areas i mean it, it's definitely really brought out in mm. scripture that this is a place of compromise even the tribe of dan fell into that idol worship Baal Hermon, a place where Baal was worshipped. So, to me, I think it's reasonable that Mount Hermon uh, is the place where those fallen angels, after the flood, visited. And I don't know the word, the word meaning off the top of my head. Again, I, I should know this. It's on the tip of my tongue. But the idea is that the Watchers, they made an oath. They bound themselves to this oath mm-hmm. that they would you know, stick together and that they would go down and they would commit this sin with the, the daughters of men. Mm-hmm. So I think the word Hermon, again, this is off the top of my head. I'm pretty sure Hermon means oath or, or, or binding. Sure. Something that has to do with the oath that they made. Mm. There is there is a connection between the word Hermon and the oath that the Watchers made. Right. Uh, I've read that in several places. So it could be that there was a place called Mount Hermon before the flood. And after the flood, they gave that same word to this mountain. 
Yep. Now, did they give that word to the mountain because more fallen angels settled on it? Could it be that they named Mount Hermon that because it reminded them of that pre-flood mountain? Right. And then later, the fallen angels set up shop there? I don't know. This is stuff that we just simply don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm very wary about taking a book like Enoch and saying, okay, well, it says in Enoch, which is not a biblical book, and we can't date it back to, you know, the book of Genesis, right? It's not inspired. It doesn't have the the antiquity. Uh, I mean, it's a few hundred years older than Christ. But, I mean, that's not anything like the rest of the Old Testament, you know? So I'm wary that we could have super reliable information in the book of Enoch where we can pinpoint the location where these fallen angels came down. Right. But again, there does seem to be this longstanding tradition. I don't want to dismiss it out of hand. So I think that it could be that Mount Hermon post flood is where the second incursion of fallen angels set up shop. Now let's talk about the mountain concept. Why did they set up shop on a mountain? What's so significant about a mountain? In Ugaritic and Canaanite mythology, there is this idea of the the god El having a son named Baal, and they have a council, and this council meets on the top of a mountain. Huh, the high place. A high place, yes. I think that the Canaanite high place is a corruption of Eden as a high place where God met with mankind. And Zion is also a high place. It says God is on his mountain. He's on a celestial heavenly mountain too, because he's at the head of the universe or the height of the universe. Right. Uh, And I think there's probably a mountain in heaven. I think that the new Jerusalem is currently located in heaven and it is also a high place. And the Lord's throne is at the very top of it. Right. So whenever Satan wanted to take over God's throne and be like the most high, he's wanting to put himself on top of the mountain. Right. Well, he is cast out from heaven. So what does he do? He establishes his own council on his own mountain. Just as God had his mountain in Eden, Satan, before the flood, he comes up with his own rival Eden. He picks his own mountain, sets up a council on that mountain. Because that's what he does. That's what he does. He's a pretender. And after the flood, I think the same thing happened. You have Mount Zion. You have Mount Hermon. Yes. So Satan is trying to imitate God. And uh, we know that Satan is going to be cast down finally and fully in the end time. Praise the Lord. But uh, I think that that's been his goal, is to imitate God, to put himself in the position of the Most High. And so I've actually heard it said that in Psalm 82, where it talks about God standing in the the congregation of uh the mighty. Yeah. And it, the word there for mighty in Hebrew is El. So basically he stands the congregation of El. Hmm. Uh, and again, I'm paraphrasing that somewhat because I don't have my Bible turned there, but it's in Psalm 82. And I've heard it said that this is actually Yahweh, the true God. And he invades the council of El. And El in this case would be the devil setting himself up as a God. Huh. And I've heard it described that it's like the devil's meeting. He's convening his own council on his mountain. And then 
the Lord shows up in the midst of the council and looks all around at yeah. all those those false gods, all right. those demons that are pretending to be something that they're not. And they're capturing the people's worship, capturing their attention, deceiving them. And he says, you think you're gods, but you'll die like men. Uh, and, I, and I'm reading it now as you were, you were talking about it. Um, yeah, he says, God, God, has taken in, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods, small g gods. He, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the, the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Um, he says, I said, there, I said, you are gods, small g, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, capital G, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all of the nations. And this is one of those passages uh, that's, it's hard to interpret because we do have examples in the Old Testament of the judges in Israel, not just like the the famous judges, you know, Gideon and Samson, but just right. judges in general, they are called Elohim. Yes. So they are sort of like, they're called gods because they represent yeah. God. They're, they're gods in a representative sense. And uh, they're, they're basically gods to the people because they exercise judgment. But it's only, uh, it's only a, what do you call it? Like a functional title. It's not something that they obviously deserve or possess because they are gods. Uh, but some people think that that's what Psalm 82 is about, that it's about the Israelite judges. I've How it, somebody say that to me before. And it's possible. Yes. I mean, I don't discount that. I mean, yeah. there is support for it. But it does say at the end that they shall die like men. Like men. Which implies that he's not talking to men. He's talking Correct. to people who think that they're more than men. Mm -hmm. Now, that could mean that these judges were acting in a manner that exalted themselves too high. And they needed to humble themselves and remind themselves, yeah, I've said that you're gods. Yes. But when I say not that, like that, I'm not saying it like that. Right. And you need to understand that you're only frail mortal beings. And you will die like frail mortal beings. Yes. And so that is a very compelling way of reading the text. However, there is some reason to believe that among the ancient interpreters, Jewish interpreters, not everybody looked at it that way. Some people thought that angels were in view. And mm -hmm. so if this is the case, we're not talking about the good angels because God's not going to speak of the good angels that way. Right. They're faithfully yeah, yeah, serving. Yeah, yeah. So he would be talking about those who were originally appointed by him yeah. to serve, to represent him, but yet they have since rebelled. And so they are working in justice in the world and that they think that they're gods. They're taking the worship of mankind away from the true God and they're bringing it to themselves. And he's saying, you're going to die like men. You think that you're above judgment. You think you're exalted. And you stand on your high mountain untouched. You're going to be brought down low just like humans are. You stand up here and you look down on the humans and you think that they're bugs that you can squash. But I'm going to squash you. Yeah. Essentially, that is what the interpretation could also be. So, anyways, I want to throw that out there because this ties into the idea of 
Mount Hermon being that place. Maybe not literally, possibly, you know, maybe where the fallen angels made their base after the flood. Sure. But uh, at the very least, it was viewed that way. It was viewed that way by the people in the area. When they looked at Mount Hermon, it was a sacred mountain. But it wasn't like Mount Zion to them. It was right. a place where they worshipped the false gods, not the true God in his holy temple. And their own temple was erected to the god Pan and uh, Caesar and all the other Greco-Roman deities. Yeah. And so when Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church, it could be a reference to the really big rock or mountain that was rising above them while he was speaking these words. And I can't help but wonder if he also gestured to it. But it is held by a number of people like Michael Heiser. And again, I, you know, I don't think that he has a airtight argument to support this. But it is possible that when he says, upon this rock, the word Petra could refer to a mountain. Mm. And he might have been referring to the mountain. And so he's basically saying, I'm going to set up my throne on this mountain. Not necessarily I'm going to reign from Mount Hermon, but Mount Hermon represents my kingdom. Mm. And while the demons are trying to take it, they're trying to, you know, set themselves up as God. The devil's trying to make himself the most high and erecting his own council around him. Mm -hmm. I am going to take that mountain. Right now it's dedicated to the false gods. It, It represents the false religious system. I'm going to take that mountain back and I'm going to set myself up on top as the true king of kings. And whenever he goes and he's transfigured, he goes up on the mountain. And people wonder if this is Mount Tabor or if it's Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon's right there. So I'm pretty sure that he went up on Mount Hermon. Hmm. Okay, I know there are differences of opinion about it. But since he was in Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi is literally built right up against the base of the mountain. He's probably referring to Mount Hermon. And so... So wait a second. When you the Mount of Transfiguration, is that what you just referred to? Yes, because Are you it saying happened. he went up on Mount Hermon for that? Yes, oh, yes, okay. that's exactly yeah. what I'm saying. So okay. whenever he says, uh, upon this rock I will build my church, I don't think it's a coincidence that right after he goes up on a mountain, a very high mountain in the area where they sure. were already at, and that mountain most likely is Mount Hermon, seeing as they're there at Caesarea Philippi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, what does he do? He presents himself with all of his glory. He says in Matthew 16, verse 28, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so he's talking about the transfiguration, and they are going to get a taste of his coming. They're going to get a taste of his second coming because he's going to show himself in his glory. He's going to appear to them as he will appear when he returns. And so he gives a unveiling, a glimpse of his kingdom glory on Mount Hermon. And so to me, this could very well be a huge smack in the face to all of the demons and all the fallen angels who have in the past been in this area and who either literally or metaphorically are setting up shop on a mountain to mimic God. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely it does. But the other thing I was thinking as you're saying that was that, mountain would be used by all the gentiles per se uh-huh. right like yes right they're not and Jews, he's t- yeah but they're, they're the gentiles uh-huh. and, and whatnot and as it turns out most of the world's christians are gentiles 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So that is... Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, again, we're in Matthew. It's interesting that the first people who recognize the kingship of Jesus outside of his parents, you know, adopted father, Joseph, Mary. Right. It was the three wise men who yes. were Gentile kingmakers and who were from a pagan background. Yes. The Magi. Yes. And, and by the way, all the early church fathers believed that they were sorcerers and that God redeemed them out of their sorcery, redeemed yeah. them out of their witchcraft. Huh. And, and that's a consistent view among them. Right. And so, you know, again, you're right. It's not a coincidence. They're in a Gentile area, dominantly Gentile area. Pagan worship is normal there. Yes. And he decides to go up on this mountain to show his transfiguration. I think that he's saying the gods of the Gentiles are going to be conquered by me. And I'm making a big statement against them. Yes. And while they are living in fear, in panic, we're literally worshiping the God Pan and sacrificing their children. They're in despair because they've been in bondage to these false gods. Right. These unjust judges that Psalm 82 talks about. He's saying that the gates of hell will not stand against my church that I'm establishing. So it's not just a statement of victory. It's not just a statement of ownership and sovereignty. It's also a statement of deliverance that he is he is delivering these people from bondage just like he delivered that woman's daughter right. from that demonic bondage. Yeah. So there's so much going on here. It's a clash of worldviews. And yeah. it's actually been said that in the base of Mount Hermon at Pan's Grotto that they actually had carved into the mountain images of their false gods. Hmm. So when he goes up on this mountain and shows his glory, it's almost like, like Joshua snake. stepping on the necks of those Canaanite kings yes. when he conquers them. Yes. So it's really epic. And it goes along with what we've been talking about whenever Jesus went down to the spirits in prison there yeah. and he declared victory to them. Well, they were trapped there. He couldn't declare victory to them when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, but there were many demons who hadn't been trapped yet in that prison. And I'm pretty sure they got the message when Jesus was in this area. Yeah. But he goes down to the demons that didn't get to hear that message between his crucifixion and his resurrection, and he proclaimed the same message to them. Hmm. He said, I'm, I'm victorious, and yes. I'm bringing in the kingdom. Yes. So it just gives a whole, a whole nother perspective yeah of the text it's a really powerful one too um but there's one last thing that i want to talk about before we we wrap it up for tonight because we're going to keep talking about this uh next week i want to talk about the difference between peter's name which is petrus yeah and when he says this rock right upon this rock i'll build my church that's petra right and they they do sound a lot alike yeah but they are two different words. It's like the word presider and president. They're cognate words, which means they are related to each other. Sure. They both are related to each other through the word preside. Petra and Petrus are both related to each other, but they do have different meanings, just like presider and president have different meanings. So a lot of people say, ah, they're synonymous. Yeah. They're basically the same. Same thing. Yeah. In Attic Greek, classical Greek usage, they were clearly distinguished between. So a Petrus was a rock or a like a fragment that came from a Petra. So a Petra refers to like the main original rock. Okay. It's generally conceived of being very large. Yes. And then taken out of that rock, removed from the quarry, so to speak, are these other rocks. And the smaller rocks would be referred to as yeah, yeah, a pebble, a petrus. Yes. So it would be a small rock, a small stone versus the 
large stones. So the small stone and the large stone are obviously of the same substance. You know, they're related to each other. Right. Uh, but they are, they are different. They're differently conceived of. So I think that what, when he says Peter and he says that you're, you're a rock. Okay. I think that stresses permanence. I think that stre- uh, stresses strength. Right. That would be, of course, applied in a unique case in Peter's case because he's going to be an apostle among the apostles. I mean, he's going to be a leader in the early church. You read the book of Acts, and that's very plain. Uh, I don't think that Peter had any primacy over the rest of the apostles, but he was looked to. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter, James, and John were yep. core disciples among the disciples. So they right. all had the same apostolic authority. But, but Peter definitely was, you know, a figurehead at the very yes. least. I mean, he was, was looked up to for sure. And so, and he was the first one to speak up too. Yes. So it makes sense. But when he's called Petrus, he's saying you're derived from Petrus. So what is Petra? Is that referring to his confession or is it referring to Jesus? And honestly, this is one of those things where I think theologians split hairs on it. Yes. It's a both and situation. Yeah. Okay. So you could say it's the rock is Christ. Mm-hmm. Or you could say it's the truth about Christ. But ultimately, the distinction isn't really clear. I mean, Jesus is one who preaches truth, but he's also called the way, the truth, and the life, right? Right. So the rock basically refers to Christ and who he is. Peter believes in Christ. Yes. So you're the you're the son of the living God. Mm-hmm. So it is upon that rock, this faith, by which one unites with Christ. We become one with Christ through the Holy Spirit. We're saved, we're begotten, we're born again when we believe what Peter believed. And when that happens, we become made permanent. We become a rock. Right. Uh, Augustine talked about this. Chrysostom, I think, said it perfectly. If you want to see what he said, you can look up the pulpit commentary on these verses and you can find that free online. But we can all be, we are all, if we're Christians, mm-hmm. we are individually Petrus. Yeah. We're a stone. We have permanence. Yes. Uh, we have eternal life. Yes. Um, and though Peter, of course, his calling was different than our calling. Huge. The base, the basic truth mm-hmm. here is that Christ is that mountain. Yes. Okay. He is the everlasting God, sovereign, permanent, unchanging. And when we are united to him, we receive his life. We become permanent. Right. Having eternal life, being a member of his kingdom and not just a member of his kingdom, but we become co-heirs with Christ. We will reign with him if we persevere. We we will sit at his right hand. Mm. Jesus talked about that. Sitting sitting uh with him in his father's throne. Right. Rather, is what it says in Revelation chapter three. Um, and so this happens to refer to security, our security in Christ, the permanence of our salvation, I think, is is implied in all that. And it also has to do with our practice in life, Peter was going to be a rock for those around him. Right. Just as God is a rock for us that he grounds us. Yeah. He's the ground of our salvation. We're yep. saved by grace through faith. Uh, we are also to be a rock for him to others to yep. represent him. And Peter would represent Christ in a special way to the other apostles and also to those that would be ministered to uh, in the great commission. So I think that uh, rock here, Petra refers to, um, the faith that we have in Christ and the truth about him. I think it's our right. creed. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's our, it's Christianity and we as Christians, um, we are little rocks yes. based on Christ. He's the original, Yes. you know, and we are based on him. It's, it's like, 
I'll give you some other illustrations of how this works in scripture. Uh, Jesus is the original son. We're adopted. Yes. Jesus is the only begotten. We're children of God. We're begotten by the Holy Spirit, but not like him. He's That's the right. only begotten. He's the one and only. Um, we can become kings one day. We're free grace if you're listening. So we believe that one day God will reward faithful believers. Carnal believers will miss out on those rewards, but still be eternally secure. So let's say one day we receive the reward of reigning with Christ. We'll be mm -hmm. kings. Right. But he'll be the king of kings. Amen. We'll be lords, but he'll be the Lord of lords. Amen. And so we derive sovereignty, delegated authority, just like Adam was given dominion. Right. And Peter was receiving that dominion. He's Petrus. He's rock. Like, you know, he's securely yep. founded on Christ, given a calling, and we are also two. It's just fleshed out differently in our life. Sure. So when looking up on that mountain, whenever you see Mount Hermon, if you ever visit there, you see a picture of it. I think that's Petra. Like that immense mountain right there, mm. the highest mountain in the region, that represents the sovereignty, the kingdom of Christ. And that mountain was dedicated to who? It was dedicated to the false gods. Right. He's saying, I'm taking that mountain back. That's my mountain. And no yeah. one has the throne on that mountain but me. Amen. And so when you think about it that way, it's like, wow. It just makes God so much more worthy, you know, yeah, because yeah, all throughout, yeah, yeah, yeah. at least in our minds, it reminds us that he's worthy because we know that. Right. But Jesus all throughout this, his ministry of his, he is being judged according to his appearance. When people see him, you know, they see a man that was the Pharisees problem, yes. you know, and the disciples, they saw him get tired. They saw him sleep. They saw him in his flesh. Yes. But it says flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you. Right. You're not judging me according to the flesh. If you were doing that, then you'd be thinking the same thing the Pharisees were thinking. That's right. That I'm just a man. Mm -hmm. He says, but you're seeing past the flesh. You're seeing what I was when I was with the Father in the beginning. And it shows that, you know, that glory had already been revealed to Peter mm -hmm. before it visibly and physically was because they were going up on the mountain. It was revealed spiritually to Peter here. But in chapter 17, what we'll see next week is that it was revealed visibly and he yeah. got to see what he knew was true already. And right. we know it's true. We yeah. believe it. We don't believe Jesus was an itinerant rabbi, carpenter from Galilee 2,000 years ago who died and he's dead. We believe that he is son of God, God in the flesh, king of kings, lord of lords. And we believe that truth now. And so we are founded upon the rock of Christ who is Petra. And, and one day... We'll get to see him transfigured. Amen. Well, it's funny because I remember hearing this, but and just six days after this, yeah, is the transfiguration. Six days after, yeah. because like it says, after six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John and his brother and brought them up to the after high six alone. days. Isn't and it? That's what I'm saying. Are you going with you going yeah. with what I think you're yeah. going with? Yeah. yeah. The six days. And yeah. Then... And if you're listening to us, we've talked about this before. You may not have heard it, but there is this viewpoint called the septimillennial view. Yep. And it was very, very common among the Jews, even before Christ showed up. And it was common among early Christians. They believed that there would be 6,000 years of human history and then the kingdom would come. And so Amen. it's interesting that it isn't until after six days that he reveals his kingdom glory. Amen. And he says, there will be some here that do not taste death until they see the kingdom. Six days, kingdom Six glory. Days. Yes. I didn't even pick up on that, Scott, hmm. until just now. But that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So It's funny how the things just pop out at you, right? It's like Yeah, I mean, because that, that is yeah, yeah. really interesting. Because a lot of people get bothered by the fact that the kingdom hadn't come right then. 
And yes. they say, well, they all died and didn't see the kingdom. But in type, typologically, yes. they did see it. They saw it in substance because they saw Jesus, the king, Amen. in his glory. Yeah, they did. Uh, but if you're listening to this, please join us next week. We're going to continue talking about it. We didn't even get to Daniel 2. Uh, we need to talk about Daniel 2. We didn't get to 1 Peter 2, which talks about the little stones which make yeah. up the living temple. We got to talk about that. Right. Uh, so we got some stuff to go into. This uh, may take three nights. It may take three nights. Who knows? <laughs> but it's a good study. I'll take you down these rabbit trails. And get you <laughs> so far, though, good rabbit trails. Yeah. You know, we discover cool. something. <laughs> okay. Uh, but thank you for listening to us, and we hope that it was a blessing. Good night.